I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to the premiere episode of Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. Some are famous, some are rich, some are both, and some are neither. But they're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. You'll hear life stories of celebrated TV and film stars, musicians, producers, comedians, composers, and rock stars, to name a few. And that's just a start. We also explore the surprising journeys of entrepreneurs, doctors, business people, athletes, and CEOs you may never have heard of, but we'll be glad you did. Leanne and I are delighted to bring you these life stories along with one of our executive producers, Kim Garner, who will be sitting in with us from time to time as a co-host. So let's begin. Our guest today got his start in Hollywood as a stand-up comedian performing at the Comedy Store. Since then, he's had great success in both television and movies as an actor, television host, and producer. He voiced characters for Muppet Babies, played Gizmo in both of the Gremlins movies, and was both the creator and voice for the popular animated TV series, Bobby's World. After being one of the first VJs on Nickelodeon, he became the host of Deal or No Deal and went on to become a popular TV judge on the hit show, America's Got Talent. His gigs include stand-up comedy tours and Las Vegas residencies. He's the author of his humorous autobiography, which reveals his struggles with OCD called Here's the Deal, Don't Touch Me. So let's get in touch with the man himself. Rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Howie Mandel. Until I listened to you introduce me, I had no idea I had done so much. We just scratched the surface because you're so accomplished. I really am. You are. We would like to begin at the beginning. What's your early story? You know, my parents have an amazing sense of humor and, and loved laughter. And I remember my dad bringing home albums and they would play these albums. And I remember them even watching Jack Parr and The Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. And they'd be up late at night laughing. And I had no idea what they were laughing at, but it seemed like a fun place to be. So I would go into the living room and watch and not understand a word. And the first time I have a realization of understanding is I watched Alan Funt on Candid Camera one Sunday night, and I was maybe five years old, and and this is as clear as day, and he explained that what he was going to do is he was going to hire somebody to be a receptionist in a fake office. And they were going to hire this young lady to answer the phones. And her only job was you have to answer the phone. And then he showed us that he was going to tie a rope to the desk, which went through a wall. And every time the phone rang and if she went to reach for the phone, they would pull the rope and the (laughs) desk would go away. And as a five-year-old, I understood. You got it. Not only did I understand, but I was in on the joke, you know? And it was like a surprise party. And I'll never forget that the first time the phone rang, the woman reaches, they pull the rope, the desk goes away, and the look on her face and her jaw drop, I was guffawing with the whole family, and I thought, this is funny. Here's what I didn't understand. I didn't understand that you needed a show to do this. I didn't understand that you needed an audience. I didn't understand that you needed to share this. So that became my sensibility. And that's something that I remembered. I suffer terribly from anxiety and OCD. And part of ADHD is impulsiveness. You know, I think and I do things without thinking of what the possible ramifications. Right. So ready, fire, aim. Right. So 
in school with ADHD, I couldn't sit and I couldn't focus and I couldn't concentrate. So I would do things and I would do these horrible, wonderful, they, they, I tell them now is they're great stories to tell, but they weren't in the moment because really as a middle school kid, you want to fit in, you want to be like everybody else. I wasn't well liked because I didn't have a witty repartee. You can't see it on the podcast. See that picture of me? You're in a singlet. You look like a wrestler there. So I was trying to meet girls and girls didn't like me. I look like a girl. Uh, you see that on the desk? Look on the, <laughs> yeah. there. Look under, right under the TV you? to the left. That is me. It looks like a little girl. So that was in high school. I was four foot 10. I weighed 89 pounds. Wow. Nobody liked me. The only way I could meet girls is I would go into the ladies' bathroom and brush my hair, stand in front of the mirror and brush my hair. That's the only way they would talk to me. They didn't know I was a boy. <laughs> oh my gosh, for real. Yeah, is that wrong? It's probably wrong in no, this, in this so, age of me In this too. age, it's probably it's wrong so yeah. cl- that time. It's so clever though for the Not time. really. So then I wanted to meet girls and I wanted to, so I said, I'll get on a sports team. Who's going to hire an 80, 80 pound four foot man to be on? So I said, wrestling, because I could get on the under 90 right. weight class. Yeah. I didn't think it through. It's a, a singlet, you're calling it. It's yes. a one-piece girl's bathing suit yes. with knee pads. And I don't like touching people. As you know me, I don't like shaking hands. <laughs> and now I'm rolling around with another sweaty little boy on the mat. It was the, every idea I had always turned into a disaster. Mm-hmm. And some of the things got me in big trouble. I thought it would be funny just in that candid camera way, but didn't tell people. I got the yellow pages. For those that don't know, that is the Google of my day. I got the yellow pages and I called a construction company because I thought it would be funny. I phoned even using my own name and voice because I didn't think things through, I'd like to get some estimates on an addition to the library. (laughs) And if you could come out at three o'clock, because I knew at three o'clock I'd be in math class at three o'clock to give us the estimate. And then I could sit in math class and not focus on what the teacher was teaching me, but watch this guy with a clipboard and tape measure out in the field measuring from the class. And then I'd watch the principal walk out. And in my own mind, nobody else, I just... (laughs) I was giggling and everything, and I'd be asked to leave the class. And then I'd hear over the announcement, you know, it's over the PA system, will Howard Mandel please come down to the office immediately? And I'd go down to the office, and the principal would be there and said, do you know why I've called you? And I'd say, no. And he'd go, there's a man in the field measuring for an addition onto the library. Do you know anything about that? Oh and I would God. say, yes, I do. And he'd say, well, what is that? And I, you, you don't have the authority to hire somebody to put in it. I said, I, I didn't hire somebody. I am getting three estimates. I am being responsible. <laughs> and then he would say, please sit down. And then they'd call my parents, which I thought this whole scene was amazing, but I was alone. You know, yeah. no other kid knew what I was doing. So nobody would laugh. And nobody shared the humor. <laughs> nobody shared. And when they heard the story, it was just like, Howie Mandel is insane. There's it's, something wrong with Howie Mandel. My parents would come down and he'd explain to my parents what I had done. And I'd see my mother like biting her lip, trying not, not to, to laugh. laugh. So I knew that I'd done something okay. And he'd say, he told them what they did as if they were going to say, we've told our son never, ever to get estimates on additions to the yeah. library. Like, what yeah. were they supposed to say? And they asked, that was that high school. So I was asked to leave three different high schools for behavioral problems. I don't have a GED, which I resent, which put me into a depression. I wasn't allowed to go to any more high schools. My friends moved on and became very successful lawyers and doctors. And I wasn't in school. And at 17, I was out in the world. It's like when you were younger and you were making these little gags in middle school and high school, the core understanding of what's funny was there, but you just had humorless administrators. No, you know, the truth of the matter is, if I could make myself laugh, 
then that was my panacea to kind of mask whatever pain I had from whatever I yeah. suffered. So I'd never, you know, I never dreamed that this should be a career, uh-huh. this should be anything. So in the mid 70s, disco was very big. And I'm not one to dance and I'm not one to drink. And so I didn't take part in that whole, there was a huge, you know, if you were in New York, it was Studio 54. I didn't do the bump. I didn't do any of that. And then as luck would have it, there also became a boom in comedy, you know, from the comedy store in California to Catch a Rising Star in New York to a club called Yuck Yucks in Canada. And it was getting a lot of press. And I had never seen anything like that. I had never been, you asked about John Candy earlier, I hadn't been to Second City. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to shows. I don't particularly love theater. I didn't go to plays, even though there was enough of it in Toronto to know about it. But I I had no interest and still have no interest really in theater. So we went one day to uh, Yuckers and I was with a few people. And it was the first time I watched people kind of in the same era as me, young people. And at that time in the mid seventies doing comedy, it became like, you know, rock and roll in the sixties was the voice of young people, you know, and, uh, you know, whether it was sex, drugs and rock and roll, and they were against the man. And that became the uprising, you know, for the Vietnam War. It was very political. And then in the mid seventies, young people doing comedy. I remember seeing like Freddie Prince on the Tonight Show who ended up getting Chico in the man. And I remember listening to Richard Pryor was the first guy that I saw that was talking about, uh, like, honestly talking about jaw dropping things being raised in a brothel, you know, and in that drug culture. And I hear that and I'd go, oh my God. So I was in this club where people were using language that I'd never heard publicly, you know, Mm -hmm. outside the Mm -hmm. screen. And I enjoyed myself. And then the host and the owner, Mark Breslin, came on stage right after the first show and said, you know, and then at midnight on Mondays, anybody can get up and do anything. And just the person I was sitting with said, you should do it. I went, okay. Like, there's no thought. And I didn't prepare and I didn't do anything. But Monday night, we went at midnight because I said, okay, because what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And they went, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And I walked out there with no plan, with nothing to do. And my nervous energy kind of took over. If you watch videos of me from the 70s and from the 80s, I'm a very different person. And that was the fear and the adrenaline. And I was going, and I came out and I went, okay, okay, okay. And I had nothing. And then they started giggling at me saying, okay. And I'd go, what, what, wait, wait. Okay, here's something. Here's something. Okay, okay, wait. They were laughing. Yeah, yeah. And when they were laughing, it was the first time that anybody besides myself was laughing with me or at me. You're and, so likable. Well, it was, uh, but I didn't think so. I was hated. Right. You know, I but didn't you have a girlfriend. I didn't have anything. And this warm blanket of kind of acceptance came over me. And I got off after, I think it was a three minute set. And Mark came up to me and said, if you want to come back tomorrow night, you can. And I went back every night. Every single night I went back. But during the day, I was in sales. You know, I had a carpet business. Right. <laughs> I had a lighting business. That was going to make money. Did you start to prepare them when you knew you were going? Not so or much. Or did you still do it off the top? Mostly off the top. The preparation came from the stage. If I did something that was funny, like because I had OCD and I wouldn't touch things, I would carry uh, surgical gloves with me. So when I had nothing to do, I'd pull a glove <laughs> over my head and then I was breathing and the fingers were going up and down. The audience was roaring. So I go, oh, this is a, this is a great piece of comedy. I don't know what the I hell I saw it a was. tape of that. That is so funny. Yeah, but it was nothing. 
it was, was it was very not, improvisational. I mean, it was very it was much arising up from your consciousness, just coming out, right? Right. And even as you know, a Jewish kid growing up in the suburbs of Toronto, I knew nobody in show business. But I found this yak yaks, and finding this yak yaks was like everybody who finds one thing. Whether you have a stamp collection, whether you want to show up at the Y once a week and play one on one with your friends basketball, I didn't have any of that. So this was this great little club and release that I could go to. Were you like 18, 19 years old when this was happening? No, I was at this point, I was like 22. Yeah, no, I was in in Toronto doing really well in retail sales of carpet. So well that uh, I did have a girlfriend at that time. And it was Terry, who is my wife now. And we were engaged to be married. And then I went to California on a business trip. And I'll tell you what the business trip was. And I was in Miami once. We were on vacation. And I saw this thing called the Uncle Sherman Flasher doll. And it was a stuffed little old bald man with a trench coat. And when you opened his coat, you could see his genitals. Jesus Christ. I said, this will be great. We'll sell this. I'll be able to sell this. This is really, remember, it's the 70s. I said, this is amazing. I'm going to sell this. So I found out that the manufacturer was in California. And I I said, I have a distribution company. I didn't. And they shipped them and they got stopped at the border as (laughs) pornography going across. So then I came up with another idea. They shipped them back to California. And then they shipped the dolls in. And then the genitals, they shipped separately. But then all the genitals got, I had like a gross of uh, like 144 genitals that I had to go claim all these cotton penises and cotton Cotton cocks. Cotton cocks. Cotton cocks. At the border, which I I went down to California. So I was here on business and I stayed at the Hyatt on Sunset in California. And because I had been doing this free kind of club thing at Yuck Yucks, I went to the comedy store and I had met some people. There's a guy by the name of Mike Binder, who is now a very prolific writer and director but at that time, he was a young comic from Detroit who came up and played Yuck Yucks, and he had met me. He got me on at the comedy store here. Wow. And I went at the comedy store, and Mitzi's friend, Mitzi Shore, who owned it, said, you should come back. And then there was a producer in the audience. His name is George. It was George Foster. He's passed away since. He had a comedy game show called Make Me Laugh. And he said, have you ever done television when I came off? And I said, no. 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 He goes, why don't you come to the studio tomorrow and try out for my show? And I had never been to a studio. And I went to KTLA on Sunset and he had me audition. And I just was in a room just trying to make people laugh. And he said, we're taping two shows tomorrow. I didn't realize that two shows were five. Like one show is five. It was a whole week. There's a strip comedy show. Mm -hmm. So it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It played on KTLA in California. And I did this show, Make Me Laugh, and then flew back to Toronto and started my normal life. No Uh, agent, walked in the door, uh, boom, boom, boom. No, in fact, I could tell that story. I didn't have an agent. I called back to Yuck Yucks and the restaurant manager, I said, say you're my agent. I don't want to say it's an agent. And he got me scale. So I didn't know what scale was, but at that time it was like $200, but I was doing five shows a day. So I got a thousand dollars to just act like an idiot for everything that I'd ever been punished for, expelled for, (laughs) you know, is what they were paying me a thousand dollars to show up for a day at like a party, you know, on a set and, and try to make people laugh. But anyway, I started working and then Mike Douglas of the Mike Douglas show yeah. and Merv Griffin, I, I guess they saw me on the show and they called me and said, would I like to come back? So I would, I fly, I flew wow, in. What and did serendipity the, is this? Yeah, this yes, is unbelievable. So I flew in and, and, and I did the Mike Douglas, I'd seen the Mike Douglas show. That's where, you know, how many times have I saw, you know, Robert Goulet singing songs from Man La, from La Mancha. I was going to be on that show. You know, I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. So I went back and I did that and then I flew home and then I got a call from the 
Merv Griffin show. And I went back and I did Merv Griffin, which was on Vine oh Street. And I did that. He was the smartest guy. Such Brilliant. a smart guy. Genius. Brilliant. I ended up getting to know him. And I love like you know oh, his business acumen was amazing. Unbelievable. And I, I, he's kind of a hero to me. And we could talk about yeah, that I later. Yeah, the same but, way, yeah. And that's my business even in show business now. And people don't know I do more behind the scenes than you see me in front of the camera or listen to me on a podcast. I'm fascinated by this business. And I found out that all business is exactly the same. All of it is if you got fourth grade math, you mm-hmm. could be a real good business yeah. person. If you're willing, but people think there's this mystery behind it and there isn't, but the fact that people don't even try or listen or read, but anyway, I'll go into, I'll, I'll go get into that. I went and did that. And then I got a call at that time from Gene Simmons, who is the, yeah, from, the, um, Kiss. Yeah. yeah. Gene Simmons was living at the time with Diana Ross. And he called cause he had seen me on Merv and said, how would you like to be the opening act for my girlfriend? Wow. I'm not knowing wow. who his girlfriend was. And they hired me <laughs> off of that Merv Griffin show. I didn't have an hour to be to be Diana Ross's opening act for three weeks at Caesar's Palace, oh Las God. Vegas. Oh my. You and must after- have gone like, oh, my, that's unbelievable. So you did not have an hour. So you they opened for Diana Ross. Did they love you? Hate. They hate. hate. The whole time? Oh, them. this is like the fr- oh, first hour. of all. I showed up. I had never been to Vegas. I was this kid from Toronto. I show up in Las Vegas and I'd never had a dressing room. My name is on the Howie (laughs) Mandel with two L's, two L's. You know, my name is not two L's and anybody who knows me well knows it's six. But, but, (laughs) but I was just happy to have a dressing room. And I'll never forget this. The guy comes backstage and he goes, welcome to the show. Have you played here before? I said, no. He says, you must do a half hour. You know, I said, okay. And he said, do you understand what I'm saying? I said, you just, you, there was English, right? I understood. No, he goes, a half hour, 30 minutes. I go, what are you saying to me? He goes, not 29, not 31, 30 minutes. He goes, this show is perfectly timed. She comes out right at that minute. She finishes at that. You know, we're not, it's not about you, young man. It's about getting the people back on the floor to Damn. play. And I said, but he goes, so you get it 30 minutes and I don't wear a watch. So I gave the guy 20 bucks and I said, here's what I need you to do. Cause I know that it takes me like a minute to pull that rubber glove on my head right at that time, because she had a whole orchestra in the band. Why don't you come right behind the curtains and bang your foot on the ground right behind me and I know I got a minute. No matter where I am, I'll stop and I'll put the glove on my head and then I'll introduce, ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for Diana Ross. So he goes, okay, it's a plan. He gives me 20 bucks. So the first night, I'll never forget this because it was like one of the most painful nights of my life. The lights go down in the Circus Maximus, which it was called at the time. The lights go down in Circus Maximus. The crowd goes crazy and you can hear this booming voice. Ladies and gentlemen, Caesar's Palace welcomes you to an evening with Miss Diana Ross and the crowd is roaring. And if you listened really closely, you can hear, and now her opening act, Howie Mandel. But no, <laughs> nobody knew me. And I walk out and I go, how is everybody? There's like no answer to anything. And yeah, I start my jokes and nobody wanted to see me. Oh. Nobody wanted to hear the opening act. A lot of them were high rollers who were sitting in the front who didn't give a shit about the idiot young comic who's up ahead. In fact, so much so that, you know, I had like maybe a foot and a half to work the lip of the stage. I remember the lady, there was a lady, middle-aged lady sitting front and center and she takes her fist and bangs on my foot and she mouths, get the fuck off. Oh my God. 
fuck off. It's a terrible story. It, it is. I have a lot of those. Terrible. So, so I realized because I was smart enough to know that it's a whole room. I couldn't really lace into her or say anything to her because nobody was listening anyhow. If they saw somebody being rude or could hear somebody being rude, then my witty repartee back would have worked. But to not hear, she's mouthing, you know, if I just start to some lady front and center going, fuck you, then I'm just telling somebody, some lady to go fuck herself. I couldn't do it. So silent, silent, silent. And then it just seemed like an attorney. I'm wearing a, a shirt and a sports jacket and the sweat is coming through my jacket. And then finally, lo and behold, which seems like after an hour, I hear... I hear the banging. Like, thank I mean, God. Thank God. Thank God. And I go, oh my God. And I finished my joke and I pull out of my pocket a latex rubber glove and I pull it over my head and I blow it up with my nose and I inflate it. And inside there, I hear silence. There's a thousand people or 1,500 people in this room. It's silence. And I have a rubber glove. It's not like I said something and somebody didn't respond. But oh, when you're standing terrible. there with a suit, with a rubber glove inflated <laughs> on your head, I mean, how ridiculous. So now I'm just thinking in my mind, I'm trying to make the glass half full. Maybe this is thicker latex than usual. Maybe they're roaring on the outside oh. and I don't hear anything. And then I let the thing pop off in silence. And then I go, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy Diana Ross. And then again, you hear that roar. And I turn around to make my way off the stage and there's a split in the curtain in the middle and I get to the curtain and I'm trying to pull it and get by and somebody on the other side is holding it shut and the applause is dying down and it's getting quiet again and I'm trying to get out and they're holding the curtain and I hear the guy on the other side going, another 10 minutes, another 10 minutes. <laughs> oh my God. Go, Are you fucking kidding me? They go, you have another 10 minutes. That's a Terrible. 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 So now I have to turn around soaked in sweat. I've just introduced Diana Ross. Now everybody, if they didn't hate me before, right. I felt in my own little way, this is- That this was is, bad. This is bad. So I, I turned around and I tried to appease and it was just the worst <laughs> 10 minutes of my life. And then they opened the curtain and they let me off. What I found out is I had only done 20 minutes, oh but it was God. so quiet. Somebody had <laughs> walked by. It wasn't my cue. And I did have another 10 minutes. Oh, my God. And I you did that for you, three weeks? Well, here's the thing. I did it for a full week. And I went every night after the show and hung in my room and ordered room service. I wouldn't go out of my room. I didn't want to see people who had seen the show the night before. I didn't want to see anybody in the, in the lobby. I didn't want to see anybody. I was so just humiliated along with that. And then at the end of three weeks, the last night, I come down to my dressing room and they say, Miss Ross would like to speak to you. And I've never been more happy. I go, I'm getting fired. I'm getting fired. You know, and I went with such, I was, I loved, I just wanted to make my way. I went to her room and there is, in all her grandeur, she's so beautiful and she's so regal. And I'm such a fan of the Supremes and Diana Ross. And she's sitting there and she says, Howie, I go, yeah. She goes, I love you. Oh my God. Thank you. No, I really love you. I think you're so funny and they just don't get it. And I'm keeping you on for another two weeks. (gasps) Oh. That's what I said. Oh, <laughs> you know, and it was two shows a night, seven nights a week. Oh my it was God. like 28 more shows of hell. But I would sometimes look to the left and the room would be silent and I'd see her beautiful brown eyes looking through a crack in the curtain at the side, just giggling and laughing. So I did a show for Diana Ross. So I just oh thought that God. that would be the end of my career and everything. But 
I've learned throughout. There's been so many horribly humiliating, but it felt like my childhood. It felt like school. And even today, I have to tell you, there is embarrassing, horrible things that happen. You never pass that, but you have to learn to get up and deal with that, you know? Yeah, but then when you're by yourself standing out there on that stage, that's a hard, hard walk when you walk on and when you walk off. But even today, you know, even today, they'll tell me, like, you know, I get hired to do a lot of big corporate events along with theaters and casinos and whatnot. We just came back from an event we did in Miami, and it's the biggest international grocery buyers association that they hired me for. Now, this is in Miami. The Miami Conference Center, whatever this is, they have a show which, you know, does hundreds of millions of dollars a day in business. It's where once or twice a year, the Dominican Republic, Central America, Nicaragua, all these places that have grocery stores, their equivalent of Ralph's or Gelson's, where do these people do the buying of their produce? How do they stock these stores? They come to Miami two, three times a year, and this is the buying. This is where they buy whatever inventory they packed. need. Packed. It's the biggest. And they hired me as the entertainment for the closing night. I will tell you that a prerequisite for enjoying me is to have an understanding of English. <laughs> I'm not really good. I'm not closed caption. I have no (laughs) sign interpreter (laughs) beside me. So there was like one person at each table that had a, you know, so I would say something, there'd be silence, and then you would hear a rumbling in the room. And that's usually the one English speaking person at the table going, here's what he means. He means that he's, uh, you know, a mother-in-law is like uh, the mother of the bride. And the mother, what the joke is, let me, and I would start my next joke and they go, no, 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 wait, wait, I explain, I explain. And they, so it was like this horrible, but they're great stories. Oh, they're great. So, moments. so even at that, even at this point in my career, you know, I will stand there almost humiliated, but I find, I go back to that young lady who was trying to answer the phone for Alan Funt. And I think these are great moments. Yeah, they and are. And I learned and I, I'm transgressing from when I finally moved out here and thought I would make this. I was lucky enough at that time to be a member of the comedy store. And I would go each and every night and watch Richard Pryor write live on the Sunset Strip, which is his seminal concert film and album. And it was the first time that I saw somebody get up on stage at a public arena, so raw, so nothing really prepared, but he would take notes and he'd have people in the back taking notes and he'd write that. And sometimes he would step too far and he would go over the line or he would test the audience. And I watched, he's the one, so when you ask, and I'm answering your question, Mm -hmm. it takes me a half hour to answer any question. It's good. Okay. He was the most influential person in my career. And if you think of Howie Mandel, you don't think of Richard Pryor. But the fact that it was his honesty and his rawness and his humanity and his humility and the fact that he shared that with the whole audience. You know, when you go watch Live in the Sunset Strip, it's a real pristine, wonderful, brilliant, you know, 90 minutes of comedy. Yeah. It, the process, too. I mean, it's you watched it, you learned a process from him, a thing to emulate in your own way. So you could create your own. Well, you know, everybody goes to Italy and they like looking up at the Sistine Chapel. Wouldn't it be cool to watch Mm. Michelangelo just lying on his- Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. And that's what I feel I did in comedy. The trouble is, here we are today in 2018, and that art form is dead. The art form of comedy is like painting. 
So if you want to paint, and I'm not a painter, but I'm looking at a painting there that's a hand-painted, it's not nothing amazing. But there was a moment in that painting where he just put really dark blue. And you go, well, that's not a painting. It's not going to look like anything. Or you, you know, if you stood behind him and go enough with the blue, well, you, you got to wait, wait, mm-hmm. I'm going to shade it. Right. I'm going to, mm-hmm. this is going to become something that it isn't now. And you need those layers. And as a comedian, you need the layers of, he needs to talk an hour and a half about breaking up with his wife to find the moments <laughs> yeah, and know, and also just as informed to find the moments that don't work or bore. And the other thing is it's subjective. Yeah. So is. the point is just because you don't find something funny doesn't mean it's, it's not, not funny. funny. Right. And there's a, another moment in my career that I realized, and that's why it's subjective is, you know, there was a time in the eighties when I was doing St. Elsewhere and I was doing a lot of stand-up comedy in The Tonight Show and HBO specials that I played Radio City Music Hall and I sold out in hours, two shows in one night. And, you know, it's Radio City Music Hall and we're kids from Canada, yeah. you know? And I remember going there that night and we finished the first show and me and Terry are upstairs in my dressing room waiting for the second show to go. And we look out on the window in Manhattan onto 7th Avenue and 7,000 people are pouring out of the first show as 7,000 people have showed up to come to the second show. So right at 7th Avenue, right in the busy midtown Manhattan, there's 14,000 people, you know, making their way in and out of this theater. And uh, so much so that it was screwing up traffic a little bit and there was cops out there and they put up some barricades because there was an event. They don't usually do two shows in one night. And, And I remember leaning out the window and Terry, my wife, said, this is for you. Can you is, this not ama- is this not amazing? And you don't look happy. What are you thinking? And, and this is what I thought. I thought, you know, I said, I'll be honest with you. It's 14,000 people. And that's kind of cool. But we're in Manhattan. Manhattan has like 10 million people. <laughs> Do you realize that 9,985,000 people don't give a shit and aren't here tonight and aren't blacking? T- you know, it's like, that's what I'm thinking. And to that end, what I'm saying is as much as you don't like something. There's, oh, there's no, 8 million people that but do But in this day and age, yeah. what happens is people hold up their phone or they say something that you said and they share it online and it be snowballs into right. this horrible thing. And you have to realize that comedy always comes out of negative. Comedy is mean. Comedy is negative. My comedy, my personal comedy, the things that made me laugh is because I was in pain. You know, some of the biggest laughs I had are the darkest moments of my life. And my, I laughed really hard the day I buried my father. Some weird things happened. I don't need to share them now, but the, it was really, I found the humor in it. And if you think about humor, even in the most basic form, a little kid goes to the circus and laughs at a clown falling down. Well, what are you laughing at? You're laughing at a, a weird looking guy's misfortune. This guy's dressed goofy. You're laughing because he fell down and maybe he got hurt. You're laughing when you look at old movies and you laugh at somebody getting a pie in the face. They got all dressed up. They just want to have a good time. What are you laughing at? You're laughing at somebody getting messed up, humiliated, embarrassing. When you tell somebody two guys walked into a bar, something horrible is going to happen to one (laughs) of the guys. That's what you're laughing at. So when people go too soon, it's never too soon. You should be able to laugh. I mean, in the true form of comedy, it's comedy. And that's why when you look at you know, our dramatic symbols, comedy and tragedy masks are right together. Right. There's really no difference. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a different way of looking at the exact same thing. Were you influenced by people like Abbott and Costello or the Marx Brothers? I love them. 
and I watch them and I'm fans of them, I don't know that I'm influenced. I think that my influence is reality. The things that make me laugh most is, first of all, my own awkwardness and ineptness and humility of being really embarrassed. In those moments, I end up laughing. I think most people don't have a sense of humor. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that the sense of humor is not the sense to be able to know if somebody comes up to you and they say, listen to this, and you laugh at it, it doesn't mean you have a sense of humor. Or to know jokes is a sense of humor. The sense is the sensibility to find humor in something that maybe somebody else didn't. And that, and that's mm-hmm. a sense. It's like a sense of style, a sense do. of smell, a sense of taste, mm-hmm. a sense of humor. I think most people, all the things that I did were, that are funny stories now, I got so much uh, right across the board, hate, disgust, and embarrassment for. I was just on the road last week. I was traveling with my son. And if I do everything that I did and on the road, I was asked to leave a restaurant, you know, <laughs> because I, I just find like awkward moments. You As, know, now I, at this time in your life, you were asked to leave a restaurant? I called the waitress over and I said, I am trying to read the menu and the people at the next table will not shut up. <laughs> She goes, well, what do you want me to do? I said, until I finish reading, all they're doing is talking and it's nothing's important. I want to read it. I want to focus because I don't want to make a bad decision. And she goes, sir, I can't tell them to stop talking. I said, I'm not telling you to stop talking just at a certain level so that I can focus. I've always had this problem. I can't focus Mm -hmm. and I can't concentrate when people are talking. I'd been the Is waitress. There, I wouldn't have known what right, to do. Right. And they did. she didn't know who yeah. I was. She goes, sir, we can't ask. I go, can you take me to another place in the restaurant with a reading lamp and it's just quiet so that I can focus on this reading? She goes, sir, please, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And I, then to me, that's my, that's my joy. Yeah. And that's my... <laughs> I want to go back. That's so I want to go back to your comedy and to something that you said just a moment ago about the things that you did in your comedy were things that previously were not acceptable, right? And that your early comedy, you used little voices and you were, you know, one of the things you talked about was being small and not being, you know, loved by your peers. And you used that little person in your comedy early, the little the little baby well, that, voice. Well, uh, the Bobby voice. The yeah. Bobby. I like, talk like the Bobby. <laughs> Bobby's world. Which people don't know, and I, I've talked about this before, but before I did, well, I started doing that voice as a little boy. I was 11 years old and I was at a birthday party and I was choking on a piece of cake and I couldn't breathe. And that's the sound that was constricted. Really? It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like if you ever blown up a balloon and then if you pull the, the nipple of the balloon and you stretch it, it'll... That's what I'm, I'm not using my voice. That's just pushing air out exactly like a balloon. And I was trying to breathe and that was, and I was going, help me, can't breathe. And everybody was laughing and I was dying, but it got dislodged. But I realized, oh my God, everybody was looking at me and laughing. So I practiced in my room with just the muscles in my throat. Got good at it. Look at you. So I got good at it. And I would go to school and in the back of the class in my friend's ear, which has become part of my act, I would go, help me. He would laugh. (laughs) The teacher would catch me and go, Howie, if you have something funny to say, stand up and tell the whole class, which is exactly what my career became, is standing up and telling the whole class. But I came out here, I started doing voices after, because I did those voices on Make Me Laugh. I worked with Jim Henson. I did the Muppet Babies. So I was was Skeeter. I was Skeeter on the Muppet Babies. Yeah. I was actually Skeeter, Animal, and Bunsen Honeydew. But uh, Skeeter was his voice. 
is Skeeter. So was Scooter's little sister. But then when I did Bobby... Bobby was his same voice. So this is Skeeter and this is Bobby. And then I got offered the... <laughs> I did uh, the movie Gremlins and Gremlins 2. I'm Gizmo, the first little fuzzy one yeah. that got wet. It's the same voice. He yeah. goes... Come so it's all the people go, you do amazing little voice. It's one voice. Yeah. I did have other voices. I was Bunsen Honeydew and... Right. Did you get an agent at some point in your life that helped you to get all this stuff or do you do this stuff yourself? To, I did to, have agents who sent me in, but... The voiceover career was basically from a friend, Frank Welker, who is like the Mel Blanc of today. Because it sounds like stuff sort of just fell into you. Well, here's the thing, and this is how I feel even today. You know, my biggest philosophy in life that I've tried to pass on to my kids and anybody that is willing to listen to me is I believe the biggest, you know, you talk about mindfulness and all this. I don't want to be mindful. I don't want to think. I love Nike. Just do it. Mm -hmm. And and that's my, you know, and I believe that humanity, our impulse, that's what probably puts us above the animal kingdom is because if you think something's good or you think there's an opportunity, you do it. If you do it, nine out of 10 times, you're probably right. If you think about it, you probably won't do it because you can reason. Talk yourself out of it. You could psych yourself out of it. You know, a young girl that gets thrown out of the house that does what you do now, Rebecca, is it can't be a, a plan. That can't be a plan. Oh, no. You just did it. Yeah. And that's why it worked. And the only difference between anybody who makes it and anybody who doesn't is you did it and they right. didn't. That's true. You know, and that's the only difference. You know, I'm on a show called America's Got Talent. Every year there's phenomenal talent. And you see these people who said, well, nobody's ever heard me. I, was, I do this in the basement. This is the biggest audience I've ever been in front of. You know, or how many times I, I, I tell you, I do 200 dates a year, you know, all over. And I'll never stop doing that because I kind of want to be in tune with real humanity and not Hollywood and not New York. And I can't tell you how many times I get into the car, the person driving me who's in their 50s, who says, what's California like? And I could tell that they have the money for a ticket or they tell me they've never been in a plane. How many people just live this very myopic life? And if you listen to radio, not podcasts, but traditional radio, you know, Wednesday became hump day. So what is the connotation of hump day? Hump day means you're halfway through the week doing shit. You're getting over the hump of shit you don't want to do so you can get to the weekend so that you just don't have to do it. Not that you're doing anything you're passionate about. It's amazing. And and it really is. I believe that they we all have retirement. the facility to be really successful. We all have the facility to do something that we're really excited about and passionate about. And to me, making it is just doing what you want. Making it is a smile. Ultimately, everybody at the end of the day that's lying, you don't want to be the richest person in the graveyard. We're all the same. Our cash and currency is the same. Yeah. You just want what one person has over uh, the other is maybe they were excited more times than somebody else. That's the currency. I, all I want for my kids is for them to be happy. And that's all I've ever chased because of my own mental health issues. I just want to be at peace. Yeah. And anytime I could be at peace and anytime I could be happy, and that comes out of saying yes. Yeah. No never comes out of it. I saw your son, the show that he's doing with the diaper. <laughs> Clearly got your humor. I don't know enough. But my that. son is teaching me, my He's son. So funny. You know, I have a daughter who's about to get her PhD. I have another daughter who's a, a master's. I mean, and my son probably ends up being the happiest and is making a fortune in figuring out and blazing a trail in business that has not been done before. You know, we as a society, as a culture of humanity, live on this barge. And this barge doesn't really, it's really hard to turn a barge. You know, it takes a long time for the current to be going the right way. 
And if you open your eyes to new and exciting ways of doing things like Steve Jobs did, like Elon Musk is, like people like my son are, it's just exciting. Life should be an adventure and it should be fun. And you should be doing like you, Rebecca, are kind of a, you follow in this footsteps where you're doing different things. You know, it's not one, you know, you're doing a podcast, but people just don't do what they want to do. Yeah. Because yeah, they go, only I can, have- I got to work, I got to pay the rent, I got to feed the kids, I got to, you can do all that and more. And you only yeah. get to be on this journey once. You are such an inspiration. I know. This, no, you really, you really are though, because <laughs> honestly, Howie, you're a very brave guy because you're contending with all this other stuff. I don't have a choice. I don't think I'm brave. I don't have a choice. I wake up every morning in terror. Yes. I, you know, and until I take my pills. So that's that gets me through the day. And you go uh, to your Toto toilet. <laughs> and I go to my Toto toilet. I don't want to touch toilet paper, let alone. I bought, but I'm lucky that I've become successful enough to come by a, a toilet that toilet. will touch me <laughs> without me touching me. Yes. More importantly, I'm surrounded by people who care, who are smart, who are nurturing. Who are, My parents were always incredibly supportive. I come from mm-hmm. a really nice family mm-hmm. and a good family. And I hope that I could be a, you know, a fraction of the parent that my parents were to me. And I'm surrounded by really good medical people and really good people. Because I'll be honest with you, there was a time where I got really depressed and I was leaving my career. I didn't want to do this anymore because there is constant Yes. Even today, there is constant rejection. And I'm going, at this point, why do I need to be rejected? Why do I need to be humiliated? Why do I need, because the glass can be half full and half empty, because with all the rejection, I also get these positive things. And right at that point, I got offered deal or no deal. I got to put this in context. In 2005, when deal or no deal was coming out, no comedian was hosting game shows. In fact, the host was the punchline. You know, once you were doing a game show, that was the bottom of the totem pole. So I get a call from my agent. He says, they want, NBC wants you to do a game show. And I said, no, no. And I hung up the phone. And then they called back and they said, well, they're going to make a really nice offer. And I said, no, I won't do that. I just won't. Then they said, can we just tell you about it? They said, it's the biggest rage all over the world. At that time, NBC is giving five nights of primetime television, five hours to it in a row. Unheard of, number one. And you have to remember, at this time, it was after Deal or No Deal that, you know, Jeff Foxworthy got Are You Smarter Than the Fifth Grader? Oh, my God. Um, Louis Anderson and then became mm-hmm. Steve Harvey. Before me, comedians were Johnny Carson right before he did The Tonight Show and Groucho Marx yeah. did the thing with the chicken hanging. Yeah. But before that, <laughs> I forgot about that, 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 that right. was it. Right. So I said, no way. And they said, can we pitch it to you? And they came out and I'll show you. I have it in the office. The guy came out with this project. He said it was going to be the biggest thing on television. I'll show you. I have the card hanging there. It looks like a special needs person made a homework project. It was like, he didn't even go to Kinko. It's just badly cut piece of cardboard. He made all these, it was horrible. And I went home and I said to my wife, she, I go, they want me to do this. And, and she goes, well, why don't you? And I said, it's gonna, it'll put the nail in the coffin of my career. And Terry, who I love, is probably the smartest person I know, just said, you realize that you are at home. You came from a deli and now you're home. So this is your career right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> go to work, you idiot. And I took the deal. And deal or no deal is the biggest success I've had to date. It became a study in humanity. I'll tell you that. So I, I said to them, I'll do it. And this is a Friday, you know, and they said, we can't do it. You're so perfect for it. You'll do it. And I said, great. When does it tape? And they said, Monday. And I said, well, don't you have to build a set? They go, we have the set built. 
I said, well, don't you have to hire the models? They go, we have all the models. So I'm thinking, how far down that list of prospective hosts was I that they can't do it without me on Friday? They're ready to go Monday. That's amazing. Number six has already been chosen. That's <laughs> you know? really amazing. It is. So anyway, I show up and I said, well, can I hire my friends, writers? So I hired these writers top writers. And I got all this comedy I'm going to do, all this amazing comedy, and it's going to be really fun. I'm going to make the best of this. And that Monday I walked out and they said, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel, deal or no deal. And I walked out and I'll never forget. And I kept a picture of this. The first contestant, I've done 500 shows. I will tell you what she's wearing, what she looks like. Her name is Karen Van. B-A-N? Van. B-A-N. N. Van, yes. In fact, I remember that because my joke was she introduced me her three kids, which I called the minivans. But, but... <laughs> I said, tell me about yourself. And I'm looking at this woman and I'm standing as close, closer than I am to you. And she tells me she's got the three children. And I look at these three children and she's never owned a home and she's on unemployment insurance and she doesn't have any uh, health insurance. And I can't remember for the life of me where she lives, but it's not New York and LA, but you know, you know that she lives in a place where any amount of money will change her life. I also am cognizant of the fact that when she's looking at me and talking to me as a layman who hasn't done a lot of television, being on a set where there's probably 15 cameras around, there was 500 people in the audience, all these lights, it was in the round. I could see a glaze over her eyes. You know, she was darting and really not focusing on exactly what I was saying. And it just hit me right then. I said, I don't, I don't really, in, in my mind, I was going to do a comedy bit right then, but I really miss, and this is my own mental conversation. You really need to focus because even if you walk out of here with $20,000, your life and those kids' life is going to be really different. So if I distract you now with my comedy, you're already not listening. So that informed my You're having cadence. this conversation with yourself. Yeah, because I, I, I thought I should do the bit now. No, 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 I'm going to focus. So she opens, she picks a case and opens a couple of cases and the, the banker offers her like $30,000. And I go, $30,000 fucking thousand dollars. This woman lives in the middle of the country. $30,000 will buy them their insurance. It'll pay the rent for right. two years. She doesn't have a job. She's never had access to this. I also believed in the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm. You ever oh, read yeah. that book? Uh-huh. More yeah. than once. Yeah. yeah. So like you're, and this is your business, yeah. but every penny you make or every dollar you make is an employee. So if I can give this woman in the middle of the country $30,000, I'm giving you 30,000 employees. There's no way, because I believe that anybody making minimum wage could, can become financially self-sufficient. So I'm giving you more more than that. So when I got the offer, it changed my cadence. And I remember saying, Karen Van, the offer, listen to me, the offer is $30,000. And that's how I talked. You know, that's not how I talk. That's not how I've been talking. But I want you, are you listening to me? $30,000 in unemployment. What are you getting? What are you getting? Getting a thousand a month? This is 30 months. This is almost mm -hmm. three years of living exactly the way you do right now. Tell me in your town, what does a condo cost? What does a two-bedroom mm -hmm. condo cost? You know, and they were flashing me on the teleprompters, pull back because you're, you're making her, you don't want her to close the deal now. Or do you open another four mm -hmm. cases for a chance? I mean, the million dollars is still a possibility, but $40,000. And then it became, you know, when people looked at me and I could look at them and go with such disdain for what I was offering them going, no deal. They're going to show me watching somebody who's standing in front of me with this and with their family, their kids are sitting there. You're throwing away $40,000 for a chance. Yeah. $40,000. 
I have a friend, Rebecca, you can give that $40,000 to, she'll turn it into a million for you. And it, then it became about, you know, humanity. Yeah. And I threw all the comedy by the wayside. And when I finished taping the five shows, Terry and I got on a plane and I flew way off to the Caribbean. I was in Tortula, Tortola. I didn't want to be, I was so embarrassed. And it, it started airing. And when it aired, I got a call from Endemol. They said, did you know what the ratings were last night? And I go, wow. And then the next night it aired and it went up. And the next oh, night it, it, aired, it went up. And it became a study in humanity. And that was the first time I, was, I wasn't trying to be funny. I wasn't trying to, I'm talking to them the way I'm talking to you what now. What did she do? She ended up walking away with just $5,000. But I mean, I taped five, five right. episodes. No, I know. I I'll just, tell you that she walked away with $5,000. I'll give you a little. We had a, a show in one of the episodes where people came back. So we brought back the first woman. And I believe that people are where they're supposed to be because they're in control. So we asked what she had done. And she had her breasts done. Oh, my God. But, oh. you know, you realize that's oh. humanity. You know, that's what she did. And it's so beautiful that you understand that they're the boss of their life. Yeah, but I wanted to help people. Right. So, you know, and that's why I care. You know, I'm with NBC and NBC has this thing called Hollywood Game Night, a show, which they've asked me to do countless times. A lot of celebrities go on and you play these games, whether it's charades or whatever, for contestants. And I will never go on because I said, like, if I'm going to do that show, it's about being funny and entertaining. And I would not... My heart would break if somebody would lose money or not went around because they were laughing or because I was a distraction or because I was funny. I don't need to do that. I don't want to play. That's why I never went on game shows where you're playing for a contestant. That's you know? a lot of responsibility, too. I feel Yeah, it. I agree with you. I remember sitting there watching that show. And when that show was on with you, me and Jill were like, Victor, did you see this? You know, we were babbling back and forth. And you're right. I would watch these people and I would want to smack them. What do you mean you're not well, saying you know, yes to this? Well, you know, there's books now. And if you study psychiatry or psychology in school, there's an, a chapter on deal or no deal and how people, I think it's called risk aversion. And there's also some books on finance. On that show, I learned more about humanity than any one place I've ever been. And that's when I, you know, I negotiated the following year for my production company. This production company in this place you're sitting was based on my renegotiation of deal or no deal. So do you mind, can we switch to AGT? Go ahead. So love that show. I loved the repartee between you and Howard. But we're really friends. He's a wonderful guy. We're friends. I got to work with my friend. I felt bad when he's no longer on the show, but it's a great show as far as, it's the number one show in the world. You know, no show gets more, I mean, no entertainment show, the Super Bowl, obviously, or maybe the Academy Awards gets more, but we are the number one show out of any show right now as of last year. And it's because people want to look for a bright spot where dreams can come true, yeah. where they just see themselves and anything can happen. And it's, it is the epitome of just showing up. That's really all you have to do. You know, if you look at the last two winners and the last two, you know, Grace Vanderwaal was a 12 year old. Oh, what a girl. talent. I, I agree. I, she was my golden buzzer. She was a, uh, a geeky little girl who had trouble socializing. She was kind of awkward. I think it's harder to be a girl anyway. I've raised both. I think it's harder to be a woman today than it is to be a, a guy. And, and she wrote these heartfelt songs about, you don't know my name, you know, I don't play by the rules, which is, she was speaking to a guy in his sixties, 
you know? And that's right. why I just hit that buzzer. And she's, she's this brilliant little, I think she's like our Bob Dylan of, <laughs> you know, our little female Bob Dylan. Wow. You should listen to even her later songs and the stuff she's doing now. So much of it is about people using their gifts, using their light. I mean, you've brought that up over and over again. But we all are gifted and yeah. we all have light. And yeah. I don't know that anybody's any better or different than anybody else. I just think that some people are fearless in using it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. That's very true. That encouragement, though, that's coming through this conversation is just, it's so important. It's so important that people stop and recognize what they have. And who they are. You talk about Howard Stern, and that was in my book, you know, about mental health. You know, that's where I first revealed that I had a mental health issue, you know, and and that kind of changed my life. And that was the beginning of the the first Me Too movement for me was that, you know, and and, uh, (laughs) no, but it was, you know, I'll I'll tell you, the, the, the truth was in the 90s, I was on Howard's show. And I was there with the other guest was one of the guys from Puppetry of the Penis. You ever seen that? Mm-mm. It was a New York show, and <laughs> no, people did <laughs> people did things with their penis, and they make different characters. Anyway, he was on the, he was on the same time. This guy was handling himself, and then he left before me. And as I did with my OCD, <laughs> no, no, no. I looked at the doorknob, and he had. And this was in the summer, and he had touched the doorknob, and he, that was it. And then Howard finished with me, and I went to leave, and I was wearing short sleeves. I said. Somebody opened the door. He goes, what's that about? I go, I'm not touching the door. That guy touched his genitals and I don't want to touch the door. He goes, it's okay. You could touch the door. So I went for a Kleenex and then they pulled the Kleenex away from me and he said, do it. And I tried to do it with my shirt and then whoever else was there, they pulled that away from me. But I have OCD. I have an obsessive compulsive disorder. And I started uh, having an anxiety attack and I was hyperventilating and I feel like I was going to have a heart attack. And I said to him, no, you got to open the door. I, I thought I was going to pass out. And I said, no, you got to open the door. You got to let me out now. I'm going to pass out. I'm going to, he goes, what do you mean you're going to pass out? I said, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. I go to a psychiatrist. I'm medicated. You got to open the door. Please help me. Help me. I, you got to open the door. So he realized that I was really panicking and they opened the door. And as the door closed on the other side, I could hear the speakers they were still broadcasting. I thought I was in a commercial break and they were still broadcasting. And this is in the nineties. Wow. So I thought, and I'm a child, I grew up in the fifth, you know, the fifties and sixties. I said, Oh my God, I just broadcast on national radio that I have a mental health issue. Nobody did. Nobody talked about mental health. I said, number one, my kids, how are they going to go to school tomorrow? People are going to say your dad's a mental case. That's number one. So I've humiliated everybody I love. Number two, how am I going to work any place? Any production has millions of dollars worth of insurance. Who's going to hire and put anybody in any significant role of somebody that's mentally ill? So there goes my family. There goes my career. What do I have? I, I just blew it. I just blew it in that one second because I wouldn't touch a fucking door. So I'm walking down the hall and I took, go down the elevator. We're in Midtown Manhattan and I'm walking through the lobby and I could see through the glass doors about to open the traffic's going and I go, there's no place for me to turn. I'm just going to run into fucking traffic. I mean, I don't know what to do. This is the end. This is the end. Wow. And I walk out into the street and it's teeming like it does in New York and there's all this traffic and my head is down and I'm just... I don't know what to do. I've never been more distraught in my life. And a guy walks up to me in my periphery and he goes, are you Howie Mandel? And I go, yeah. He goes, I just heard you on Stern. And as he says that, I could feel like my heart drop into my stomach and I'm just about to run. And he goes, you have OCD. And I didn't answer. And then in my ear, I can, I can even feel his breath. He goes, me too. Oh my God. I just got And it was chills. the first time oh. I ever... 
You know, I went, what? He goes, no, I felt so good to hear that somebody else has. I said, you feel good. You too? And at that time, people weren't emailing or texting. I go to the P.O. box and I was getting letters saying, I heard you. You made me feel so good. It's nice to see that somebody else. And it was the first time that I opened up, you know, and if you read my book, that's the opening chapter of Here's the Deal, Don't Touch Me. Me too were the two words that made me feel any of us. When you're uncomfortable, when you're suffering, when you're, you always think nobody knows how I feel. And nobody walks into a room feeling totally comfortable. No, everybody feels like we're the outcast, like they're the fish out of water, like we're humiliated. And that's what I deal with each and every day. But I've learned through laughter and through my career and through business that there is no difference. We're all exactly the same. And we're all these awkward, goofy, funny, sad, scary little things. And that's what gets me through minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And that was a seminal moment in my life. That's incredible. Howie, this was so beautiful. That was amazing. That's incredible. On the next Say It Forward, we've got one of rock and roll's biggest stars, Roger Daltrey. He'll tell us what it was like from his earliest days in post-war England to the start of his musical career as founder and frontman of The Who. He'll reveal how the band that was one of the leaders in the British music invasion of the 60s became one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. He'll tell us how the rock opera Tommy changed his life from being just a singer in a rock and roll band to becoming a worldwide phenomenon. I've always had a crush on this rock powerhouse, and we think you'll love his life story. So join us as we rewind to the beginning with Roger Daltrey on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes Store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 